0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 423. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. First, I'd like to give a shout-out and thanks for putting up a five-star review to the show to Abby, who did it on Podchaser. This week's interview is with Andy Lopata. Andy's an acclaimed professional relationship strategist who's written four books on networking, Both Forbes.com and The Independent called him a true master of networking. In 2020, Andy published two books, Connected Leadership, How Professional Relationships Underpin Executive Success, and Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength. In this conversation with Andy, we discuss the problem of professional relationships, how personal can or should they be, how to build trust and build valuable connections a very stimulating conversation. You'll find all the show notes on mintradal.com. and please consider to drop in your rating and review and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Andy Lapata, great to have you on the show. I uh, we are, we have many 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 connections ensemble and uh, as a writer, you have you writing on leadership. We we've, we've got uh, a wonderful synergy on that but on top of that you actually have had two books come out essentially at the same time both of which on top of that have been shortlisted for the business book awards so a hearty congratulations for that Andy in your own words
1: how do you like to describe yourself <laughs> in much more glamorous terms than other people like to describe me would probably be my best answer um how would I like to describe myself professionally I am a a, a professional relationship strategist if you want to put a label on it in terms of what I do it's whatever gets the message across so I mentor I speak I write I host a podcast I train um I'll do whatever it gets uh, it takes to get the the message across to the right people who need to hear it love it I I was actually on a show about relationships
0: which which re- regarded uh, you know, marriages and, and and all those type of personal relationships. So this is the first professional relationship dude that I, have or a person that I've had on the show. So what's the problem with professional relationships, Andy? How did you get into this?
1: I should say, first of all, that if no one in their right mind with my track record would pay me for personal relationship advice. So I had to focus in on the professional. Um, right. What's the problem? I, I I think that professional relationships, most people would agree that professional relationships underpin the success of whatever you're trying to achieve. If you ask most people how important are your relationships to what you're doing, I think the majority of people would accept their importance. However, I think we tend to take them for granted. So we assume they will be there when we need them. We don't think strategically enough about them to make sure that we have the right people in place, or in some cases, we think too strategically uh, and, and we ignore just building relationships with people we have rapport with. We don't invest enough time into nurturing them, making friends when we can, rather than when we need them, as Carol Stone once famously said, and we're reticent when it comes to leveraging them. Uh, so it's not about an A lack of awareness of their importance is about a lack of focus on actually making them work and achieving our full potential with the help of other people.
0: Well, we're going to dig in on all of this because obviously I read your book, Connected Leadership, how professional relationships underpin executive success. And, And at many levels, I completely embrace and agree with this. Yet, we're talking about professional relationships. And as you, funnily enough, said right at the beginning, don't ask me about personal relationships. My question is,
1: how personal are professional relationships? It's a lovely question. It's a very good one. Uh, It partly depends on you as an individual and the other people because it comes down to personality type. It also depends on your industry uh, because in some industries, and I would challenge it, But I also respect reasons for it. In some reasons, people are a lot more reticent to cross a line between professional conversation and personal conversation. Um, And in some industries, and I work with a number of compliance-heavy industries, uh, there are very strong reasons not to cross the line. Um, I would always, as I say, challenge it. I I was um, working with a group in the financial services industry earlier this week, and we were looking specifically at LinkedIn. And one of the things that I've been working with them on is to let more of their personality through on their LinkedIn profiles. Um, because if you look at their activity, everything is brand. And their their organization sends them things to post every week, and, and that's what they're posting. Um, and then I showed them, one of them has started posting much more personal stuff. And I showed them the difference in the engagement figures for that compared to the on the brand messages and i said it's that two things happen one by posting the personal stuff you get permission to post the business stuff secondly by getting people to engage with you on the personal stuff they're more likely to see the business stuff because of the way linkedin algorithms work but even after all of that one of the guys said linkedin isn't facebook i can't do it um so we need to everyone is different that i respect that that's his choice he has to be comfortable you can't force someone to to engage in a way they're not comfortable with but people who are good at building and nurturing relationships normally do so by understanding when to engage in small talk
0: at some level i'm going to imagine behind your impulsion or your desire to say or fight back when they say it's just professional the reality is when you add the personal it's more powerful
1: absolutely um we 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 resonate with people who we have something in common with now it can be professional things in common our ideas what we want to achieve but I do believe that if we resonate with each other on a personal level, that, that deepens the relationship. And when you deepen a relationship, you, you want to support each other so much more. One of the stories I tell in my keynote talk about professional relationship is uh, when I delivered a talk at a senior management retreat for one of the top private equity firms uh, in the UK and I delivered my talk and I was invited to join the management team for dinner. And I sat next to the uh, managing director for London and we had a good conversation over dinner. And as a result, he invited me in to work with his team. That program was an absolute disaster. Probably the most disastrous program I have delivered in my career. So I kept the relationship with Tim but i didn't even ask about further work about three years later tim and i were having lunch and he said why are we no longer using you i said don't you remember what a disaster that program was he said no that's fair point he said but why why was it a disaster so we analyzed it and we worked out that it wasn't the content it wasn't the delivery there were things we could learn from. There was the selection of who would come on it, the communication of what to expect, and a few other things. But once we'd worked through that, Tim brought me back in again. And he has referred me on several occasions since. In fact, just before this interview, I was doing some work for a new client, which is a referral from Tim. He's a chairman of several companies, and this is one of them. Uh, and he's my mentor now. Now, this is someone who I delivered my worst ever program for. Why has that happened? Well, when we had that original dinner, we talked about my presentation and we talked about why it was relevant to his team, but that wasn't most of our conversation. Most of our conversation was about a shared passion, which was sport, more specifically football. I hesitate because I know that turns some people off because they don't like sport or they don't like football. You don't have to. That's what Tim and I shared in common. There's actually a lot more, but at that point, that's what we discovered we shared in common. Uh, Tim's a big Aston Villa fan. He has seats at club Wembley. He invited me to the FA cup semi-final where Aston Villa were playing Chelsea a couple of weeks later. Um, He said, meet me at the Chinese restaurant on, on the Wembley estate. I went to join him looking for the city banker in his pinstripe suit and found him in an Aston Villa shirt and a Claret and blue curly wig. Um, We connected on a human level, and that's what allowed, allowed us to engage much more deeply on a professional level. That's why. It's my
0: observation that there's no chronology to this type of friendship. You can have a, you meet at a disaster or you um, have an, a context that allows for you to plunge into the reality, the messiness of the personal experience where you're going to share. Well, I like this football club, or I have these opinions that are political, or I, I express this vulnerability or emotion it doesn't necessarily happen in a chronological manner. I, in other words, you know, you have to wait five years to allow this mm. moment of vulnerability. So it it breaks down, it's rather messy, and it's hard to prescribe how to build that type of relationship. What are the factors that go into constructing that kind of a strength in a professional relationship? How do you, how do you work it if you are to add a, an element of rigor to the
1: idea of building a professional relationship? Well, number one is something that you just touched on, and that's patience. Many of the teams I work with, particularly when I'm working with, with sales teams, because that's, that's a chunk of my work. It's not everything, but I work with a lot of salespeople. A lot of salespeople, particularly working in multinationals, which is my core, core market, um, they're targeted, and their targets are short-term. It's why I left the, the corporate world 20-odd years ago, because everything was based on the, the quarterly results of the New York Stock Exchange. you can't can't build relationships when you're focused on quarterly stock exchange results. Uh, You have to recognize where people are at. The last year is a classic example. When I'm working with clients in the pharmaceutical sector, they can't go to hospitals and pressure their short-term targets when the hospitals have got something else on their mind at the moment. They have to empathize and respect that. So patience is the key. And if you're willing to be patient, then over time that's going to pay off because people will remember how you treated them when they didn't want to be sold to um so that would be a key thing second is is your ability to listen and i mentioned the phrase small talk earlier and that would have put a lot of people off and i've been promising to write a blog for a few weeks about the power of small talk because actually um, i want to rephrase it big talk because it's in the small talk that you get the clues you find out about the person you bridge the gaps you find out what you've got in common um, so listen take yourself out of the equation listen to what the other person's saying ask yourself what's important to them what's going on in their world what what are they trying to say what's why are they saying this is it, i mean are they just filling gaps or or is there something on their mind at the moment and and can you help with that or can you just listen you know give someone a good listening to um and i'm not one of these people and i think it's if you can do it naturally it's a great skill i'm not a process person Even though I teach a lot of process, it doesn't come naturally to me. But there are people who will have a conversation and then go away and put it all into a CRM system, you know, into their database. So they'll know your birthday or how many kids you've got. And then next time they talk to you, but you you mentioned your daughter had an operation. How did it go? If you can do that naturally, it's great. I do it naturally in the sense that if I remember, I'll bring it out. But I don't write it down to remember it um but but you know i remember for example when we've had one conversation um you it was very clear that you and i um share a love of music and if i remember rightly i think you're a deadhead you're a grateful dead i am andy oh yeah i won't shy away from that though And and that's not written down that's what struck me because okay i'm not a grateful dead fan nor do i dislike them as i think i explained they've always been on my radar, but never towards the center, you know, I love the doors, I love the Velvet Underground, um, Joni Mitchell, um, the birds, you know, it's a lot of stuff from the same era, the same world, but the Grateful Dead, for me, have always been on that periphery. But it was it was it's close enough that that resonated for me naturally. Um, not so that I would write it down and force it into conversation. But if that became relevant, um, it's 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 natural to bring up so that's just being aware of what someone's saying and you know bringing it in at a natural time um, and not just seeing someone um by you know thinking of them by the title on their business card uh, but thinking about them as the person behind the business card uh, and that's key one of the interesting things that the pandemic has brought us is an insight into each other's homes uh, you know, we, I, I, you're looking now, obviously this is on audio, but you're looking at my the back of my office. So you're seeing um, uh, books, my books, other people's books, thank you cards, but you're also seeing artwork by my nieces when they were kids or my friends' kids. Mm-hmm. That, that little touch. Uh, I, I've had uh, conversations with senior executives um, who are answering the door to Amazon or with their dog on their lap. I've had a call with a senior executive who's... I said, are you sitting on a bunk bed? And she said, yes, I'm I'm homeschooling my daughter while we do this. She wants to say hello. I love that. And it it just, it brings some humanity into what we're doing. And I think it's sad that we're going to lose that when we get back to something approaching normal because we've seen behind the high-powered job titles, the shoulder pads, and we've seen the person behind it, and it's so much easier to relate on that basis.
0: Do you think we can actually draw the curtains and uh, hide the kimono? What well,
1: when we go back, yeah. I, yeah, I think it will happen. I, I think some people will um, stay vulnerable and stay open, but we're creatures of habit, and it takes more than a year to break that a habit that's so ingrained for many people, and I think, sadly, we will revert to form. I don't know how long it will take, um, and it may... I think it will take more than a year. Um, but I think that human nature will kick in and um, you know, one of the biggest things, okay, I, I'm looking at a particular world and, and I inhabit and straddle different worlds as you do. So many of my clients, not all, but many of my clients, as I said, are multinational companies. They're under huge pressure, as many of us are, um, but and they're under huge time pressure. So it's hard to get that connection. It will be it will be natural for them to to revert back to type. I also inhabit the world of the speaker consultant where we do share our personalities a lot more. And I think that that was was what it was before pandemic and that's what it will be after. People who um, work for themselves so therefore have that leeway to make more choices for themselves may well embrace that freedom that we've got a little bit more brazenly and more openly for longer or maybe more opportunities in the
0: future than to hire you some more because if we're going back to where we were well we needed
1: a lot of work back then so we will need again need more work in the future i would hope so but actually this has been after a rocky start the last 12 15 well no the last eight months have been very good to us because a lot of businesses realized that they couldn't engage with people in the ways that they were used to, which may have been lazy, but they felt they ticked the box. And so that brought me a lot of work because they said, how do we engage with people when we can't see them in person? Hopefully over the last eight months, where I've had a lot of work doing that, I've demonstrated the value of what I do. I've just seen some feedback from someone who's finished the mentoring program who, who said, Um, You know, I asked for open feedback on the pros and cons, and one of the cons was, I can't put all of this into practice because I can't see people. So now that they know they need this, then I'm hoping that continues. But in the past, I think there was a complacency, about which I intimated in my first answer, about relationship building. And I'm hoping um, for my business, as well as for everyone, that we drop that complacency and recognize that this is important. The bulk of what I want to talk to you about is is in Connected Leadership, but you wrote two books
0: at the same time. You need to explain to me the mania that allowed you to write two books at the same time, Just Ask and Connected Leadership. Uh, I mean, Just Ask is is a, is a serious, uh, thick wad uh, versus Connected Leadership, which is a little bit of a thinner wad, but all the same, a fully packed book. How did you come around writing two books at the same time? And la- Tell us about that.
1: Books are like buses with me. It's quite funny. Um, My first book was written in 2005. My second book was started in 2004 and published in 2006. So that was two at the same time. I then published the second edition of my second book in 2011 and my third book in 2011. So that was two books at the same time. And then my fourth and fifth were 2020. So they really are like buses. Nothing for ages and then two at the same time. What happened last year was Just Ask, like Death Came Third, which is my second book, which had been started first, Just Ask has been a project that's been ongoing. Oh, wait, for- wait I, I'm just going to ask the listeners to now recall all five books. Of which, <laughs> <ones? sighs> yes, yeah. Um, so, so Just Ask was a project that was ongoing for three years, uh, probably more, you know, but writing element three years. Uh, it was originally due to be published in two thousand and nineteen. I didn't get it right. This was this is the fourth version, fourth rewrite, restructure. Um, so I didn't get it right. So it was delayed by a year, which, in a way, was a good thing. I mean, it was a good thing because it's a better book. It was a very frustrating thing, but it came out when people really need knew they needed it, uh, because. People were feeling that vulnerability came out in December of 2020 and people were feeling that vulnerability um, that the pandemic brought by that stage. If it had come out in December 2019 as planned or November 2019, well, it would still have been needed, but I don't think it would have been as immediate as it was. Um, So that was all in place. So come the start of the pandemic, I was on that fourth rewrite um and i think the book was going into editing process around that time pandemic came along now take a jump back to autumn 2019 and autumn 2019 i finally gave up i had been trying for i don't know how many years to get people to see networking as more than working a room and you know my my role was networking strategist you said professional relationships strategist my role was networking strategist um that was getting me work that wasn't fulfilling me it was getting me to teach um younger people which is fine i love doing that but just teaching them how to network at events which is part of what i do but it it's not fulfilling because i'm a great believer there's no point you know susan rowan coined the phrase how to work a room there's no point knowing how to work a room if you don't know why you're in the room in the first place but I was fighting a battle to get pe- people to think strategically about networking and think beyond events. So in October, I think it was 2019, I wrote a blog called Shifting Position, which is on the homepage of my website. And my my profile on LinkedIn as a featured blog. And in Shifting Position, I explained why I was shifting position. I no, one, no longer talked about networking, but I talk about professional relationships. So that was the start of a separate journey. Uh, Interestingly, what happened there, I was I was doing some work for a, for a big client and I was running a workshop and I had it all planned out there around the M25 for me, which is the, if you're not familiar, it's the orbital road around London, which is pretty much a, a traffic jam at all times. And it was a nine o'clock start. So that meant being up at five to get on the motorway by quarter to six. Um, so that I could get around it and just sit in the car park for an hour uh, rather than sit on the motorway for two. So I went to bed nine o'clock in the evening to be ready. And I can't fall asleep that early. So I'm lying in bed trying to sleep. And suddenly new ideas were springing to mind. And I kept jumping out of bed and this went on all night, jumping out of bed and writing down new models on post-it notes. And I put the post-it notes with my training notes went to deliver the training. When I got to a certain point, I said, look, you've got a choice. You can have the training I've planned. And I delivered many times, or you can have the ideas that kept me up awake all night that I think are really interesting. And of course they also give us the new stuff and it worked really well. Um, And so I had a number of new models. I came up with the seven stages of professional relationship. I came up with what I now call the relationship matrix. I called the three I pie then. Um, and, and a couple of other new ideas that I hadn't really explored before. And I realized that this wasn't represented in any of my books. And this was some stuff that I wanted to put in the public domain. In addition, as part of that repositioning, the next stage, I I, I, I was working at all levels of seniority, but I wanted to be seen more in that leadership space uh, because i got a huge buzz when i worked with senior leaders but too often because of that association of networking with with being networking events they were bringing me in to work with their junior staff so i wrote connected leadership and i wrote it in two weeks the ideas just fell onto the page so one book took me three years to write and as you say it's a much much bigger bolder book um connected leadership was just 12 chapters well actually i'll tell you what happened um I wanted to get this stuff out there and share it and I decided to write a tips book with 12 ideas and I was going to use it as a lead generator for my business to to get it out there that I worked with leaders and that there was a way for leaders to think about professional relationships. I would offer this 12-step tips book as as an incentive to engage in conversation with me and I'm in a mastermind group and one of the guys in that the meeting I presented this was a very senior learning and development professional focused on executive development. So for the top 200 leaders in a globally renowned firm, you'd know them straight away. And he took one, all I had was 12 headings and he took one look at it and said, you're giving this away. And just him saying that made me think, have I got more here than I thought? This was going to be 12 pages, you know, a page on each. So I went back and I I mind mapped what a chapter would look like for each. And I realized I had a book and I just started writing them. And it's not a long book. The, the category it's in is the short book category. It's 25,000 words. So that's probably, it's, it's half of Just Ask. It's probably um, just over half of a typical business book. Um, half to two thirds of, of a, a typical business book. Um, but I just put these ideas down in, a, in an easily digestible way and it took me two weeks and we brought it out within two months.
0: Well, Fantastic I it was just listening Andy and uh, I like to connect dots and so what's interesting is you went to a mastermind and then you mind mapped so it's like mm. mastermind mapped <laughs> your <laughs> yeah. way into that book. Um, so obviously the the uh, seven stage uh, framework is is central in in connected leadership, or at least that's the way I perceived it. the The fourth stage was the one that I would say I, I wanted to dig my teeth into because it's all about trust. and 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 I had a, a eyebrow raising moment to think that the seventh stage is where you become friends. because just like your story at the beginning, Sometimes the link in through that small talk, big talk uh, opens the door to trust and friendship and a fast track. So let's start with how do you build trust?
1: I'm, I'm smiling because I've just recorded a, a, a video answer to exactly this question. Um, you build trust in a number of ways. The number one for me, I believe we trust people we like. It makes us want to trust them more, let me put it that way. And we like people we have something in common with. So if you can find commonality, and I shared that in my story about Tim earlier, you're more likely to trust people. We trust people because other people we trust, trust them. That's what I call associated trust. That's where name-dropping comes in, but done in a natural and not pushy way. Um, But if we're introduced by people um, who the other person knows and trusts already we're already in um in in a place to start just just a step back from that i think it's an interesting wording on the question because we assume trust is binary and we trust or we don't trust someone now i think there's a state that i call trust neutral so rather than saying not trust if i say i don't trust you we take that to mean i distrust you actually, I think it can mean something different. And that is you haven't given me grounds to trust you yet. So therefore, we're trust neutral. I don't trust you, I don't distrust you. If we have associated trust, that will help us get off to a better start. If we can have associated distrust, I see people who are um, associated with people I don't trust. And it happens because there are people in our self development world that have a bad reputation and if I see people mentioning their names I take a step back so I'm not in trust neutral with them either so it can work both ways Uh, so when you name drop be careful that the names you drop are actually ones that will resonate with a person you have in mind Um, so we have a starting point that is very rarely trust neutral because even people will decide whether they trust you or not based on how you're dressed how you're presented what you look like whole range of factors that will decide where, which side of trust-neutral you start Then you build from there. And you build from there, as I talked about, you, you build from there from common interests and you build rapport from there. You build from there through delivery. You know, the old phrase of under-promise, over-deliver. That will help you build trust. You build from there through reliability, which is uh, very much the uh, in the same ballpark um, as, as your general delivery. Um, you you build trust through credibility, showing your expertise. So, you know, people will be making a decision on this podcast on whether they trust me or not. Some people will be thinking, God, he's full of himself and he talks a lot, and they won't trust me. Others will be thinking he knows his stuff. I hope they are anyway, hmm. and they would be more likely to trust me as a result. So being able to show your credibility will help you build trust and the other thing that, that factors into trust is how it resonates with other people's experiences. So I talked about um, how we'll trust people based on what they look like, how they dress. That might be linked to experiences we've had with people who look like that or have dressed like that in the past. Um, we we trust people, I, I mentioned, based on associated trust. There's also associations with with, working with similar people in the past or people in similar space or similar environments and scenarios so we have to recognize all of that's factored in and we have to be patient as we build trust and the final thing I'll say because I'll cut it shorter for the people who don't trust me because I talk too much uh, the final thing I'll say is we we trust people who, who share their humanity and I think vulnerability is a huge way to get people to trust us lowering the mask doesn't work with everyone not everyone likes that um, but I think increasingly people do appreciate it and you see it on social media a lot. It's the whole point of Just Ask uh, is encouraging people to be vulnerable. But there was research that I talk about in Just Ask that was conducted by a team at Harvard Business School and they looked at the role of sharing failure in building um, what they called an um uh, benign envy so they compared malicious and mali- and benign envy so malicious envy is where you want someone to fail benign envy is where you want someone to succeed or where you want to emulate what they've done and what they found is that when leaders shared their successes and only their successes malicious envy was high uh, when leaders shared those successes but along the way, shed where they had struggled, stumbled, fallen, benign envy became high. So we, we increase trust when we show that we're fallible.
0: That's lovely. I, um, I took many notes as you were going along. And one of them I want to dig in on, which is you're obviously referring to a notion of you are your network. In other words, if I tell you I'm a friend of a schmuck, and you don't have a high regard for that person that obviously is going to indicate to you something it doesn't mean i'm written off but it certainly is a an indicator of the type of person i am and then i wanted to confront this idea of well we i like the chap or this woman and we share an interest in common and i could then maybe put a a bracket around that as like-minded i like them they have similar interest and yet, we also need to have diversity of opinion. How do you navigate that one, Andy?
1: Well, one of the things that I talk about, as you know, is the importance of cognitive diversity. That's diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, diversity of perspective, of expertise, of experience. Um, so you do, I think you can like people who think differently to you. That comes down to, you know, I, I shed different factors that make us trust one of them was commonality another was credibility and if someone is credible they don't have to have the same ideas of you as you they don't have to have the same perspective but they talk a good game and you respect the way they approach it this is what we've been lacking in in british society in american society and many others over the last four or five years that we're not allowing respect to come into our conversations that we're saying you have to think like me or I can't like you, I can't trust you. Um, and, and this is what we're lacking in that discourse. Um, I was I was watching the Daily Politics today and uh, you had a conservative backbencher and the Labour minister, Jess Phillips, talking about a topic that was bo- close to both of their hearts and it was around domestic violence anyone who knows british politics will know jess phillips is a huge powerful advocate um for, for women's rights and against domestic abuse and it was about a new bill going through parliament and there's um as a conservative mp put it there is just one final sticking point um now she was saying this isn't a major issue jess phillips was saying actually it's huge um, but behind everything and you can see just that it's shaking with anger at times but you could still see common respect between them they differed on a point but they they were able to have that discourse respectfully and i don't think we're seeing enough of that um but isn't that so important on such a such a big issue that we can listen to different views you know and, and, and in just ask i talk about politics in the chapter and i talk about vulnerability amongst our political leaders and the importance of them being able to get ideas from outside their bubble Um, i interviewed the former conservative party chairman current minister james cleverly and i asked him about that the the tories had a policy going into the 2017 general election um, and it's the one that's credited with costing them a majority in that election Um, and it was social care and if you if you studied politics in the uk and you 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 remember that um theresa may actually backtracked on the policy in a press conference said it wasn't a u-turn when it was because they got it wrong and i said why did you get that wrong and he said they were working on the policy when the snap election was called and because a snap election was called they didn't have the chance to it out for consultation in the way they normally would he said so what you ended up with was uh, a group of experts who agreed with each other he said they they agreed with each other and who agreed with each other who agreed with each other and his words were and nobody stepped out of the matrix and we need our ideas to be challenged we need to be able to consider different perspectives but we need to be able to do so respectfully it's been missing in our political discourse, it's been missing in our national discourse and in our global discourse on a range of topics. Climate change is another great example, but there are so many sadly right now. Um, but I think that's feeding in to a personal level as well.
0: I absolutely adore that. I I, I feel like that is well, certainly one of my balliwicks is this idea of having challenging conversations where you are able to express an opinion. The question I think is, or the feeling I have is that this notion of self-righteousness, my my, my side is right. And then that there's actually only one topic we're allowed to talk about in terms of how COVID's come around. and And we're not allowed to have even discourse or debate around that, which presumably is feeding into our inability to confront one another on any topic.
1: Yeah, but, but that that stems from Brexit. It stems from climate change. It, it stems from, you know, the, I, I, I date it as five years because I think Brexit was a big turning point. Even, you know, we had the Scottish referendum beforehand. Even that was a more polite discourse than we've, we've experienced since. So social media obviously, you know, feeds this but it's not solely that and we do need to we need to shift the way we, we approach things we need to grow thicker skin um and i i'm very liberal with a small l um but i'm i'm pulling my hair out what's left uh, a bit of uh, the way conversation is being stemmed because you know um someone said something that someone else disagrees with um i'm i'm a, i believe that you shouldn't seek to offend um, but I also believe you shouldn't seek to take offence either. If you are offended, naturally, yes. Too many people are seeking to take offence. When I wasn't getting the book right with Just Ask, I um, I shared it with my networks. The pub- I didn't trust my publisher. Um, that's a whole other story, which I touched on in the book. But But I wasn't happy with their feedback and their opinion and their communication. So I chose to go to my network for feedback. And one of the people I went to, Um, It's a guy called Paul McGee, and I haven't named him before in terms of this specific feedback, but, you know, I'm I'm happy to do so. Paul's a good friend of mine, very well known. He wrote a phenomenal book called Sumo, Shut Up, Move On, um, which he's most famous for, but he's written a number of global bestsellers. Got another book coming out in June. There's a quick plug for that as well, and he's on my podcast. Um, But I sent the book to Paul because when it comes to writing books, Paul's probably one of the most successful people I know. And he's also someone I respect so much. And he said to me, the first thing he said was, I didn't want to give you negative feedback, but his wife, Helen, told him he had to. I said, That's what I need. And he said, You've got a brilliant book here, Andy, but this isn't it. That's what I needed to hear. if 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 paul had given me just positive feedback to make me feel good and everyone else had done the same i wouldn't have brought out a good book i believe just ask is a good book the feedback i'm getting now tells me it's more than a good book and i'm very proud of it i wouldn't been proud of the, the book that paul read at that stage but i needed to hear it so we need to let people know it's okay you know i mentioned earlier that the feedback from my mentee earlier today we just finished the program this morning this afternoon um i said to that to, to that group of mentees i have changed this program based on the feedback of the previous groups that came through and that and, and i need real feedback i don't need you to pep up my ego it's nice when it happens and say nice things because i feed that back to the to the people that book me so that's important but i feed everything back um but I need that. I need the negative or the constructive, whatever you want to call it, the feedback or feed forward, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Call it Bob. I need that because otherwise I can't grow. And we have to a be willing to accept that, Bob, that feedback. But b we need to be able to communicate that it's okay. Hello, Bob. <laughs> um. There
0: are a few more topics I want to get into if you have the time. One of them is um, you mentioned the associated trust. You had trust neutral. Um, I was thinking of another thing as I read your book about the asymmetry of trust, where Mm. you might trust somebody, but they don't trust you or vice versa. How does that play into professional
1: relationships? Where do you go? It's a very good question. Let's say you trust someone, but they don't trust you. If it's important to you that they do trust you, then you've got to put yourself in their shoes. You've got to understand why they don't trust you and what can you do about it? You know, I have this with a lot of my clients that they're dealing on accounts. And, you know, I work with clients where they're, you know, they're shifted from, from pillar to post. So the people that they're trying to engage in relationships with are saying, oh, this is a fifth person I've had to deal with in two years. Uh, Or someone else has, you know, burnt the bridge between them and and they're coming into a distrusted environment, not because of them personally, um, but because of something else. The first thing I say to them is that there's three different foundations on which trust is professional trust is built. There's trust in you personally. There's trust in your product or service. And there's trust in your brand. You need to work out which, where you are on each of the three. In order to tell you where you need to build the right bridges. So, if using the examples I've, I've shared, um, if it's trust in your product or service, you've got to struggle. If it's a sales thing, this isn't always about sales, but these are people that are in sales. So, let's use that as an example, if that's okay. But you know, you could you can take this model and apply it in different ways to different scenarios. If it's trust in your product or service, you can't do much about that. If it's if it's um, if we take that out of a sales role and into a delivery role, if the product or service is your delivery, then you can do something about it. But if you are selling something that someone else manufactures, then you're struggling a little bit. If it's trust in the brand, which may come from the public discourse, you know, your brand may have been in the news as has happened with clients of mine in the past for the wrong reasons. That can be difficult um if it's to do with the person who was in your role beforehand or a historical issue that can be difficult but then if you can build a strong personal connection i think that's easier to overcome but you need to know where it is but really my answer to your question is put yourself in their shoes understand why they don't trust you and understand what you can do about it if the asymmetry is the other way they trust you but you don't trust them you decide how important that is to you that you do need to trust them and then ask yourself why you don't and what you need to challenge them to do to change that. If it's not important to you to change it, then the onus is on them.
0: Love it. That's great. I, on my French podcast, I had a a lovely interview with somebody who writes about identities, stereotypes, Mm. and he deconstructs, Patrick Sharnitsky is his name. Uh, the 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 things that go into the construction of who you are, and so we have this identity, we have communities, we have values, we have opinions and tastes. So, at it, it, some level, they become more and more superficial to some degree, as he, as he mm-hmm. describes it. And the, where I wanted to cross over with you, Andy, was in you have this chapter about presence on social. Should I, as a leader, be on social? Obviously, there are different social media where your customers are and different personalities, but you also obviously talk about politics and just ask, Where, where do you sit on bringing in your personal taste, convictions, opinions, not to mention obviously values, maybe tribes, communities, because at some level, as soon as you ascribe or you Say I belong to a certain tribe, that tends to mean I don't belong to another tribe. I'm an Aston Villa yeah. fan, I'm not a Liverpool fan or whatever. So how do you how do you navigate
1: that road? I, 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 we're going sort of full circle in a way, So we talked earlier about personality on on LinkedIn, um, and, and we talked even earlier than that about strategic thinking when it comes to professional relationships let's go back to that strategic thinking when I'm teaching LinkedIn. The first step I'm saying is why are you on there? What, look at each individual social network and say, why am I on there? Who do I want to engage with? And what do I want them to think, feel, say, or do as a result of engaging with me? Now, engaging with me can be reading my posts and comments as much as involved, getting directly involved in a conversation. Um, and, and for different networks, it might be different things. So, for example, I will be a lot more political and open about my football on Facebook and Twitter than I am on LinkedIn. Um, if I talk about politics about LinkedIn at all, I will probably not venture a particularly strong opinion. Whereas, I'm on Facebook, I'm very opinionated. On Twitter, I'm not opinionated about politics because there's too many trolls on there Um, and it's just not worth my energy the amount of times I write a tweet and delete it I can't tell you and sometimes that's all you need to do but I know on Facebook I might get drawn into it and I've backed off from certain debates but for me as someone who studied politics and, and believes in each individual's role in the democratic process it's incumbent on me to play a part in the debate but I look at where I do that but if I don't say anything, if I see injustice or something going wrong in the world, then I can't complain about it if I haven't spoken up. And I try and engage my network in that debate. LinkedIn, that's not why I'm there. I'm there to uh, build, nurture, uh, and, and help me leverage professional relationships and personal relationships professionally. Um, so I will share myself. I will share um elements of myself i've probably shared that i'm a charlton fan on there but if you're on twitter you can't get away from that because probably half my tweets are about charlton um and on facebook you wouldn't get away from that i've probably shared that i'm a music fan but you'll see more of that on facebook um you will see that i love cooking because posting as i found post up a picture of a chopping board with garlic onion uh, and ginger and chilies on it and you'll get a lot of response um, but, you know, I add a bit of humor in there. You know, I said one of the advantages of meetings in lockdown is you don't have to think about what meetings you got the next day before you cook a really hot curry. Um, you know, so it's putting a bit of humor in that got a huge engagement. Uh, and I do share stuff like that. But it's, it's it's thinking first, why am I here? Who do I want to engage, engage with? What do I want them to think, feel, say or do as a result of that engagement? The other thing I would say on that is, And I touched on this earlier to a degree. I'm in a privileged position as a you in that we are free to make decisions about what we post. And the only people who really feel repercussions is us. Uh, The people I work with. To a different degree, don't have that luxury because they are reporting to their bosses. They're reporting to shareholders or, or, or other stakeholders. So they have to be more careful. Um, So even more so, what do you want people to think, feel, say, or do as a result of your engagement? You want them to engage with you, see you as an interesting human being, want to know you, feel that they've got stuff in common with you, but you don't want your boss to say, why the hell are you doing that? And and I I speak as someone who, in the pre-social media days, um, was a civil servant back in the early 90s, was in the audience on Question Time, and this has happened twice, got the mic, said something that nearly cost me my job. So um, yes, there are times to keep opinions to yourself. I was saved by the FA Cup final, going to extra time and penalties and in a replay, which meant the question time was on very late. And this was pre-Sky Plus and videos because I'm old. So my bosses didn't see it, they just heard about it. That's
0: funny. Yeah, so your governance and the industry, like you're saying, does matter uh, in terms of how far you can go. Well, um, Andy, the, what I can say is that the, uh, the, the, the afterword of your book uh, talks about a, a wonderful topic, which is empathy in time of COVID. And, and certainly we are talking about the lastiness or not of what's been going on. One thing I certainly hope and has been part of my Ballywick is to continue to promote the benefits of empathy, obviously, when you're talking about trying to gain trust and what's in it, what's in it for them what are they thinking feeling and and using the empathy and that obviously is it going to be a, a glue to to make sure you get those personal relationships how can someone track you down andy um find your
1: podcast find
0: uh, your books uh, a contract or just follow you what would be the best ways
1: i've um i've made it really easy in two ways one is by having an unusual name so if you can spell it you can find me um, so it's Andy, L-O-P-A-T-A. Um, but the best way is if you go to Linktree. So it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E uh, forward slash Andy Lopata. I always want to put a dot com in there, but there isn't. It's dot e So it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Andy Lopata, L-O-P-A-T-A. And you've got links to my books, to my podcast, to my blog, to my website. Um, to my saddle leg management whatever you need.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll put that, of course, into the show notes. Pleasure to have you on the show. Lovely talking about professional relationships and ultimately, of course, somewhat personal
1: all the same. Minter, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: I.